what you want, when you want it, where you want it. This is The Mesh. This episode of The Caregiver Community is sponsored by Pace at Home. During this uncertain time, Pace at Home is enrolling participants who wish to continue to remain at home. Partnering with families, Pace at Home provides caring medical support for all of our program's participants. Visit us on our website or give us a call at 828-468-3980 to talk with a representative that can discuss with you the Pace at Home all-inclusive medical approach. Pace at Home is the champion for seniors wishing to remain in their community. Welcome to the Caregiver Community. This is a place where we talk about the joys and the challenges of caring for our aging parents as well as caring for ourselves. I am Frances Hall, founder and executive director of ACAP Community, Adult Children of Aging Parents. There are now an estimated 20 million adult children in the United States and many more millions worldwide who are caring for aging parents and are concerned about their own life as they age. In this podcast, we are talking about navigating the health media landscape, tips for older adults and their caregivers. I am joined by Dr. Mary Tucker McLaughlin, an associate professor and researcher at East Carolina University's School of Communication, and that is in North Carolina. Mary's area of research is mass communications and its implications for public health. She is a former television news producer and public relations specialist with more than 25 years of mass communications experience. Hi, Mary. Thank you so much for being here today. Hi, Francis. Thank you so much for having me. This is going to be fun. It is. We also have Ms. Karen Summy with us as my co-interviewer. Karen resides in Catawba County, North Carolina, and serves as project manager for ACAP Community. She holds a master's degree in educational media and completed additional graduate work in professional communication at East Carolina University. Her research has focused primarily on health literacy and health communication. Hi, Karen. I'm glad you're part of this conversation, too. Thank you, Francis. It's great to be here for this discussion. Absolutely. Right up your alley. Mary, we know how very important it is to understand today's media landscape, from television broadcasts and advertising to online to printed media. Even the most intelligent consumer can fall prey to production values, algorithms, and even subtle nuances that we just don't catch when we consume various types of media. This can have especially damaging consequences for older adults who are often isolated or suffering a decline in mental acuity. And they sometimes just don't work as well with technology platforms as younger generations, and they don't necessarily understand how media are produced to influence a particular action or even a way of thinking. And and I realize as I'm saying they, I include me in that. <laughs> but But let's talk about some of this. One of the really good examples is the rise in advertising for drugs and treatment plans in recent years. How in the world did that happen? Well, advertising in the pharmaceutical industry has a really rich history. Um, 
But actually, it hasn't been motivated by the pharmaceutical companies themselves, interestingly. Um, If you go back in history before World War II, what you'll see is that people could get most prescriptions from pharmacists without a prescription. Um, so without a doctor's prescription. So you could walk into the pharmacist and say, hey, I'm having this and I think I need this and you could get it. And there was a lot of print-to-consumer marketing that was not regulated at that time. And so what was happening was, you know, people were getting seeing lots of ads about supposed medications that may or may not help what they had, what kind of the health issue that they were experiencing. Um, and, and frankly, it was dangerous. Um, and so along with the marketing, really the marketing was the way that, that things were marketed was really instigated by the regulations that were put in place to control prescriptions so that people would be safer um, and, and not be self-diagnosing. So after World War II, um, what, what started happening was pharmacies marketed directly to physicians through medical journals, um, telling them about the drugs that they, that they had for their patients. Um, but that started to change when there was, a, there was a pneumonia vaccine that came out. And the logic was, you know, this is really for people who are healthy above the age of 65. And if they go to see their their doctor, we can tell them about it. But if they're healthy and they're not going to see the doctor, we have no way of informing them about the importance of this vaccination. And so that's really, that was really the impetus um, for some of this direct to consumer pharmaceutical marketing was to really educate consumers about things that were available. And the pharmaceutical industry was was very concerned um, about interrupting that doctor-patient relationship, and and they were a little hesitant to move forward again with the direct-to-consumer marketing. Um, but because of the the importance of the vaccine, um, they started doing this and and informing consumers about these medications. That that's really interesting. That is interesting, and I knew some of that history, but certainly not all of it. Well, it certainly does seem that the ads are here to stay, so I uh, am glad to know that there was a very good impetus for that when it started. Um, Mary, it's well known to people who develop various forms of media, uh, online, on television, wherever, that video and moving images have a greater immediate impact than the written word. So how do the visual representations in these ads affect our perceptions of the drugs? Well, there's a lot of strategy that goes into developing advertising, clearly. Um, And the visuals are a huge part of that because we tend to remember the visuals longer than when we remember the words. Um, And and if you think about how people even watch television, um, oftentimes they're not just watching television. They're doing multiple things at the same time. Um, And so it's sometimes hard to absorb the words, but you see a quick image and those images depict, you you don't see sick people in the images mostly. What you see are very healthy people. They're wearing bright clothing. They're outdoors. They're living these really fabulous lives. 
And so the impression and perception and watching the ad is that if I take this medication, I'm going to live a life like those people. Um, and it's true for all kinds of advertising, cosmetics, perfume, you know, auto advertising. You know, if, if I drive this car, I'm, I'm going to live that guy's life. Um, but, but of course, you know, we, with, particularly with pharmaceuticals, we have to look a little deeper into that. And, and really the best thing to do is to discuss anything with a physician and, and to truly understand it that way. Because a 30-second advertisement is just simply not going to give you the whole picture. Right. Yeah, I've heard of people who have walked into their doctor's office and said, I saw this commercial about this, this medication, and, and I, I think that would be really good. <laughs> and I think our physicians probably are, are a little bit taken aback by Dr. Google, you know, that so many of us do, as well as the advertisements on television um, and are continually trying to steer us in the right direction. Yes, and, and I think there's a real balance to that. Um, it's important to to bring health issues to the surface, to, to alert people about things that they may have, um, but it's also really important for people to communicate with health providers and, and not just go and determine that this is what I have and, and this is the medicine I need, um, you know, before seeing a health provider. Right. Absolutely. So, so, okay. So obviously we need to pay close attention to both the visuals and the words we're hearing when we watch these ads. But what about written health information like Dr. Google? Um, what about the written health information that we receive either from a medical professional, a pharmacist, public health department, online, whatever, what can we do to really better understand what we are reading and what we are being being given? So the first couple of sources for information, the health provider, the public health department, um, any type of organization, say the American Cancer Society, any type of noted health organization, those brochures and that information is trustworthy, we know. What can be questionable sometimes is when we look for health information online and we come across people's, there are, you know, millions of blogs out there and people writing about all kinds of health issues and, and some of what they say is true and some of what they say is not true and could also be dangerous. So the question is, when we're looking at this material, you know, how do we judge what is what we can trust and what we can't? And the National Institute on Aging actually offers several tips for people on how to know. Um, and so basically, when you're reading a blog or something online, um, if it sounds too good to be true, if, if my loved one has fourth stage cancer, is it really true that they can drink some type of tea and make it go away? Well, that seems too good to be true. So probably that is not a legitimate source. Where are they getting this information? Have they cited any legitimate sources in this article? These are things we need to look for. Um, is there an author? When was the last time the website was updated? What types of sources are they using? We're looking for .orgs, .govs, and, and this is worldwide. 
anything that the government puts out, whether you're in Australia or the United States or South Africa, we trust the government, we trust the public health minister, we trust the Centers for Disease um, Control. These are trusted entities. So we know when information comes from these sources that it's legitimate. If a blogger cites these sources and you can go directly to those sites and see the information for yourself, that can also be a legitimate source. But you need those sources and you can't trust someone necessarily who's just writing something online because we all have access to write things online and we can write whatever we want and post it. So we have to be very careful about that. Right. Good point. That is great information, Mary. Let's take it a little bit further and talk about, for a moment, the online world. Uh, Most of us, even the older generation, and I know my mom, she's taught me a few things about the online world, and uh, I applaud her for getting in there and trying. Um, We've grown accustomed to looking at computers for various reasons. We might be on social media or on specific health sites or just passively reading about a health issue in the news, how can we check to be sure what we're viewing online about health is true? So one of the things that you can do is is a little reverse search on some of these things. So for example, um, for a couple of months, there was something circulating about a veterinary medication that was a cure for COVID. Um, And it, It got circulated through social media, and there were people who actually took this medicine that was really meant for horses and not meant for people. That's a really dangerous situation. And so if there's something that comes out um, about a particular health issue, we want to kind of back research it and look look at what we're seeing. Are there any sources? We can Google what they've said and see what else comes up about that particular topic. If there's anything that's negating what they're saying, if if the CDC has come out and said, no, this is not something that is helpful for COVID, and in fact, it's dangerous for, for humans. Um, we need to do some research about that. Just because your neighbor has an Instagram site does not mean your neighbor is a medical professional. Um, and so we have to be very careful about what people are sharing online and also what we're sharing. That That's some, <clears throat> that's some really good really good tips and really good insight because yeah we all have a tendency to post things and to do our own research but you know over the years I've done a good bit of research online about health issues and and often I see ads about medications and treatments for the same issues on all the platforms why does that happen why is it repeated so often So what happens when we go on social media sites and websites is often we'll get a message when we go on the site asking us if we will accept cookies. Now, cookies are basically a way for that site to pick up a data packet that is us um, and then fine-tune the information that we receive so that it's about our tastes, our preferences. If you've ever used Pinterest and you 
research a recipe. So today I want to make chocolate chip cookies. If if I know if I'm looking at my Pinterest um, scroll, all of a sudden, you know, I'll have ten different recipes for chocolate chip cookies over the next five days, and that's because when I signed into Pinterest, I accepted cookies, and all kinds of we- retail websites do this. It's it's not really. Um, it's not necessarily a harmful thing. A lot of times they're helping you um, with things that you've already done um, on a particular, you know, store site or something. They're, they're, they've saved some of your information so that you don't have to keep typing it in. So it, it can be actually convenient, but it can also be a annoying and, and when you get into other areas outside of health and you keep seeing these things over and over, um, you know, it's not necessarily what, what we always want to see is the same thing over and over. And you wonder, you know, how are they, how are they finding me? You know, I went from Pinterest to YouTube and, and I'm still getting these ads. Yeah, thank you for that explanation, because sometimes, <clears throat> sometimes it's almost been spooky how I will have researched something and several days later, it's like it just keeps coming up over and over and over. You know, that's very interesting. And I, I understand a little bit of that and probably just enough to make me dangerous. But I work on Pinterest from both sides of the coin because I am a creator of Pinterest uh, materials, but I'm also a consumer. And as as a creator, I love it when people find my information, but as a customer, sometimes I really still love that information. I love to be able to find something that I've searched for before and it just automatically pops up. But there are times, and particularly on other forms of social media, where I, I do find that a bit of annoyance at times. Mm-hmm. But it's certainly a lot for us to think about. Um, we know we've only touched the surface today of all that we need to understand about health messages. And many of us will want to continue to look for good resources. So, Mary, in your opinion, what are some trusted resources that we can recommend when we look for health information? So there, there are a lot of trusted entities um, that we can look for, and most people have them right in their very own area. Um, your local hospital is probably affiliated with a larger organization. So if you think about the Centers for Disease Control, you think about Mayo Clinic, Cleveland Clinic, Duke, these are all trusted organizations. Um, any of the the dot orgs, the American Heart Association, the American Cancer Society, these are all trusted organizations with legitimate information that we know is trustworthy. Yeah, I'm, I'm thinking Alzheimer's Association also. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. And then we have ACAP. ACAP.org, ACAPcommunity.org. <laughs> yes. Right. So, so these are all these are all trusted um, sources for information, and and that's where we need to go. And and if we're reading a blog and we see a little piece of information that we think is interesting, and and we want and we really want to believe it, or we want to talk to our doctor about it, you know, those are good sources to go to to ensure that that information is actually correct. Yeah. Yeah. Mary, you have given us some great insights and great information. Is there anything else that we haven't asked that you think, you know, oh, yeah, let me make sure that people know about this 
Is there any last minute words of wisdom or, or insight? I think as as a caregiver, particularly, um, one needs to really pay attention um, to what our loved ones are looking at online, um, and and where they're getting their information from. Because I think you know, we all we all know that false information is incredibly detrimental, and particularly if someone is living on their own and they don't have a lot of people coming to visit, you know some of the actions they could take in their very own home based on online information that they've read um, it is scary. So I, th- I think it's good to have conversations with folks about, you know, so, you know, what, what have you been reading about on, on this side? And, and, you know, you told me the other day that you were interested in this medication or, or that you found out this about your health issue. Um, where did you find that? And, and let's, let me show you how to go and look and, and make sure that that information is correct. Boy, that's really good. That, that's a, yes, a good yes. final word. <laughs> Thank <laughs> you. <laughs> this truly has, has been so informative. We realize, of course, that this topic is huge and certainly beyond the scope of our podcast today. But we really are excited about being able to start this conversation to help caregivers, to help listeners understand how media works and how it influences all of us, whether we are older adults, adult children trying to help parents, or really people at any age. So thank you, Mary, for helping us understand what today's health media landscape looks like and how we're influenced by news and social media. And Karen, thank you for being part of this conversation and bringing your knowledge and expertise and insight. And for our listeners, we hope the information has been helpful to you relative to your loved ones and your own life. If you know of others who you believe would benefit from this podcast, please do share it with them. We will be linking this podcast and the resources Mary has provided into our website blog, and we would love to get our listeners' impressions of the information. We also would love to hear from you if you have ideas related to any of you know any of the, the podcasts or products that, that we are sharing. Before we end, we definitely want to thank Pace at Home in Hickory, North Carolina, our sponsor for this podcast and all of our ACAP podcasts. We are indeed grateful for your support. This program is part of the Mesh Network of online shows and podcasts. You may find more Caregiver Community podcasts on any of the platforms where you listen to podcasts and as well as our, as well as our website, www.acapcommunity.org. While you're on our site, we hope you will take a few minutes to learn more about ACAP, our educational programs, and our local chapters. And if there are other topics you'd like for us to address as a podcast, please do let us know. As we say so often in ACAP, regardless of our background, education, career, or anything else, when it's our mother, our father, our loved one who needs help, Caring for and advocating for that person become very personal and extremely important. So please take care of your loved one, but also remember to take care of you. Stay well. Bye for now. You've been listening to The Mesh 
an online media network of shows and programs ranging from business to arts, sports to entertainment, music to community. All programs are available on the website as well as through iTunes and YouTube. Check us out online at themesh.tv. Discover other network shows and give us feedback on what you just heard.